I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Did any of you uh, get to see the full moon last weekend? Uh, it, it, it was incredible. You know, Caitlin and I were, were out spending some time with her family last weekend, and while we were driving, the highway made one of those curves where you come around the bend, and there's just this beautiful sight before you. So, you know, some of you have had this happen where you come around the bend, and there's Mount Rainier, right, towering in the distance, and it's just breathtaking. And for us, uh, on this particular weekend, we came around the curve, and there was the moon, massive and bright, hovering over the trees. It was breathtaking. I mean, it was just incredible. And the moon is fascinating, right? I mean, as, as people who mostly live indoors, especially at night uh, with electric lights and stuff, we really miss out on the moon a lot. We don't get to see it. We don't pay as close attention to it. Something that some of you might know about the moon is that it rotates at the same rate that it orbits the Earth. Uh, this is called synchronous rotation, right? That's the official term for it. And what this means is that the same side of the moon is always facing the Earth uh, because it's, it's always rotating at the same rate that it orbits, right? It would be like me walking a circle around the auditorium but always keeping my face towards the middle. Right? That, that's what the moon does as it goes around the earth. So we always see the same side of the moon. This is the inspiration behind the name of the Pink Floyd album, The Dark Side of the Moon. Any, any fans, anyone you know, admit you, you like rock music in church? That's totally fine. That's great. Right? But, but truly, right? There, there is a side of the moon that is always toward the earth, which also means there's a side of the moon that's always away from the earth, the dark side of the moon, right? Which is just an incredible metaphor for, for mystery and just the things that we can't quite know. And so, you know, the, the rotation of the moon inspired this 70s-era rock album, but over a decade before, it inspired some reflection on the nature of God and Jesus. Uh, the preacher and author, A.W. Tozer, described it this way. He said, The moon and the earth turn in such a way that we only see one side of the moon and never see the other. The eternal God is so vast, so infinite, that I can't hope to know all about God and all there is about God. But God has a manward side, just like the moon has an earthward side. Just as the moon always keeps that smiling yellow face turned earthward, so God has a side he always keeps turned manward. And that side is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's manward face. You see, last week we reflected on the ideas of God's transcendence and, and God's imminence. And in our Wednesday group this past week, we grappled with how much of our language about God is really abstract uh, and really just unknowable. But in Jesus, 
All of these big abstract theological ideas about God become concrete as God takes on flesh so that God can be seen and known. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Philippians describes Jesus as having the very nature of God, having equality with God. The beginning of the Gospel of John describes Jesus as the Word of God, who was in the beginning with God and who was God. And then goes on to say the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the point of of Scripture is clear. When we look at Jesus, we see God. Or to put it another way, if we want to see God, we need to look at Jesus. Though there is much mystery in God and God's being, Jesus is the side of God, so to speak, that faces humanity. Even more, the side of God that actually has a human face. And that is why more than half of the Apostles' Creed that we've been exploring together focuses on Jesus, right? Who he is, his life, death, resurrection, and reign. So for the next seven weeks, as we continue through the Apostles' Creed together, we're going to be considering all of this about Jesus, who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection, his reign. And so today we're going to look at this first line, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And as you can already tell, there are tons of places we could go in Scripture to explore this. But today, I want to anchor in the beginning of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we are headed today. Um, And I'll give you guys a a second to to turn there. You know, I I don't know if many of you are uh, that familiar with Hebrews, if you spent much time in it recently. I I realized uh, that we we haven't really spent much time in Hebrews together here uh, in in sermons since since I've been here. But man, I, I love this book. I love Hebrews. It's, it's so incredible. And it gets its name from, from the way that it speaks all about the ancient story and traditions of the Hebrew people. But really, this book is all about Jesus. And it's clear from the very start. So if you're there, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, let's read together. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of his being, sustaining all things 
by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the gift of Jesus who shows us exactly who you are. God, I pray today as we consider the words of Scripture together that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, so this passage from the beginning of Hebrews really is the, the perfect parallel to what we see in this week's line of the creed. So I want to dig into this passage in three parts, just as the creed describes Jesus with three titles. Christ, God's only Son, and our Lord. All right, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We're going to look at each one of these and, and, and dig into this passage together. So let's start with Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. You know, one thing somewhat startling about the creed is how it makes this sudden big jump, right? One moment you're saying God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, that's what we looked at last week. Then all of a sudden, there's Jesus. You know, it's like you, you just flipped all the way to the New Testament. We, we went from Genesis 2 to Matthew 1. And that happened really quickly, right? I mean, what happened to, to all of this in between, right? That, that, that's a lot of story to just jump over. What, what's going on? And, and it does seem that way. But there is one very important word that ties all of this together. And that's the word Christ. The word Christ. Because you see, Christ is not a name. It's a title. When we say Jesus Christ, we're not saying that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. But rather, we're saying that Jesus is the Christ. We do this today with titles, right? We say Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so. And Mr. or Mrs. is not part of their name. It's a title, right? Or a number of other titles that we have today, like President so-and-so, General such-and-such, Judge or Captain or whatever it is, right? We can come up with a lot of these. right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. And so the word Christ here is, is from the Greek word Christos, which itself is translated from the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. One who is anointed. And this word runs all through the Old Testament. I mean, we, we see it in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, referring to Aaron and his sons who were anointed as priests. 
They were charged with overseeing the tabernacle, later on the temple, and they were charged with tending to the spiritual care of God's people. And then we see this word again in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, where first Saul and then David and then others are anointed as kings over Israel. And they're charged with ruling over the kingdom and tending to the material care of God's people. And we see this word appear all throughout the Psalms as well. And in fact, we read it just a moment ago in Psalm chapter 2, where it says God's anointed is declared to be king over all the other kings of the earth. And then finally, we see this word pop up uh, throughout some of the prophets as well, uh, most notably Isaiah, who says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed. Right? And so the prophets are also anointed ones who are charged with calling the other anointed ones, the priests and the kings, back to God, along with all of God's people. Right? Whenever the priests and the kings have turned from their tasks of spiritual care uh, and, and, and turned that into religious rules, or the kings have turned their task of material care into thirst for power, the prophets come and say, hey, return to the Lord. Right? They are anointed to, to proclaim this message. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see the prophets, the priests, and the kings as anointed ones. Right? They are all messiahs, so to speak, who are each tasked with the care and the deliverance of God's people. But, I mean, if, if you've read it, throughout the Old Testament, none of these lowercase m messiahs ever succeed. Each one fails to call God's people back to faithfulness or fails to be faithful themselves. And so throughout the Old Testament, all of these messiahs come and go, and we are left with this, this one lingering question. When will the Messiah, capital M, Messiah, come? And the response to this question is the arrival of Jesus. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he is the true prophet. He is the true priest. He is the true king of all. Jesus is the one that this storyline has been leading to all along. And that's what we see in our passage today in, in Hebrews chapter 1. It begins, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right? All along, God has raised up anointed ones to speak for him and to speak of him. But the final word about God is Jesus. I mean, I love what Brent said as we opened up. Jesus didn't just come to say things about God. He is the word of God. He is God's message. 
And so all of these priests and prophets and kings were good, but they're just shadows. The real deal is Jesus. He is the one who finally and fully reveals God to his people. And what this means is that Jesus is the lens through which we clearly see all of Scripture. We can only rightly understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus. His life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. What this also means is that to, to fully see Jesus in, in all of his glory, to, to, to begin to, to think about this, we really need to see him as the fulfillment of the whole story of Scripture. Otherwise, Christ just becomes kind of an empty religious word. But it's not. It's not. To confess Jesus as the Christ is to say that he is the one the story has been leading to all along. And so it's good for us to study not just the New Testament, but the whole of God's word. The law, the prophets, the writings, the gospels, the letters, all of it. Because all of it reveals the fullness of Jesus, who is the fullness of God. And that's really what, what the book of Hebrews is all about. If we were to read the, the whole book of Hebrews together, we would see that it goes on to show how Moses and Aaron and the kings and, and the covenants are all fulfilled and surpassed by Jesus, who is the Christ. And so in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken by his son. And that leads us to the next few words in the creed, right? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. Now, this is a, a curious phrase, especially after last week, because we were reflecting on the reality of God as father, right? And how Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our father, and so if God is our Father, well, then what does it mean to say that Jesus is his only Son? Right? Well, this line in the creed is not meant to counteract or contradict the reality of God as our Father. But what it is meant to do is to communicate the way in which Jesus is uniquely God's Son. Right? We are all God's children but we're his children by adoption. Jesus is God's son by nature. Jesus is God's son down in his very being. Christian thinkers in the first few centuries used the word substance to describe this. All right, let me try to kind of work that out here. So, so all of us are familiar with making things using different substances. For example, on, on Monday evenings during Lent, many of us have been gathering over Zoom with paper and glue to make collages. 
And we were reflecting on these different Lenten themes. We're using the substances of paper and glue and so on to to create collages together. Or, you know, others of you uh, might be familiar with using thread to crochet or knit or sew quilts. Some of you may have worked with wood or, or metal in order to build furniture or structures. Some of you work with seeds and and plants, and you've arranged a garden. Maybe it's flour and water and sugar to make cookies or bread or whatever it may be, right? On and on it goes. There are things that we make with various different substances. And the early Christians described Jesus as being of the same substance as the Father. In other words, Jesus is not made of things and stuff He is the same substance as God. He has the same essence as God. Jesus is God. Another phrase that early Christians used to describe this is to say that Jesus was begotten, not made. We see this in some translations of the Bible that describe Jesus as God's only begotten Son. And the idea here is, again, of of substance. Uh, Once again, you can think of any number of things that you have made with various substances. All those things we just mentioned. But some of you are parents. And, well, what substances were used to not make, but beget your children? Now, the the nitty-gritty details uh, are are another conversation for another day, something about birds and bees, I understand. But the point is this. Your children were not made from various different substances around you. They were begotten by the substance of your very self. They are made of your own flesh and blood. They share your very DNA. This is the difference between something being made and something being begotten. Jesus was not made. He said he was begotten, not made. Right? He is the same substance as the Father, which is, again, to say that Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. Right? He always has been. He always will be. This is what it means to say that Jesus is God's only son. The the comedian Stephen Colbert made a comment this way. He said, if the son of a duck is a duck, well, then the son of God is God, right? And that's funny, but it's true. This is who Jesus is. He is God. The reason this is in the creed is because in in the first few centuries, there are many who disputed the identity of Jesus. Some believed that Jesus was maybe just some kind of powerful angel who came to earth. Others believed that that maybe he was a human who later on became divine, maybe at his baptism or, or resurrection. And today, there are still some groups that believe Jesus is different than God or that Jesus was the first being created by God. And so it was important in those early centuries to reflect on this reality that Jesus is God. And it is just as important to reflect on this today. 
Right? There are many things that Christians can faithfully disagree on. The identity of Jesus is not one of them. Jesus is God. This is who Jesus is. He was not made. He is the one through whom all things are made. He is fully divine. The one in the beginning, the one with God, who is God, he was not made. All things were made through him. This is exactly what our Hebrews text goes on to say. In verse 2, it continues, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. Jesus is not created he is the one through whom all things were created. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's very being. He is the same glorious and eternal substance as God. Which is again to say, Jesus is God. And then finally, uh, this, this passage, another rich image. In the beginning, God spoke and created all things by his word. And here, the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as sustaining all things by his powerful word. And here, again, we see Jesus is God. The same God who made all things is sustaining all things. Colossians says, in Jesus, all things hold together. And so, you know, maybe all of this just feels a little overly philosophical, right? We're talking about being and substance and, and all this stuff, but the point is this. Jesus is the exact representation of God's glory. If we want to know God, we have to look at Jesus. And if Jesus is God, well, then he is worthy of all of our worship all of our lives, which leads us to the last couple of words in this line of the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Our Lord. Right Now, on the one hand, in the early centuries, the word Lord is a term of, of honor and, and respect, sort of like sir or ma'am today, right? But even more than that, the word Lord is a term of power and authority. It was common in the Roman Empire to say, Caesar is Lord. That was sort of their national anthem or their pledge of allegiance. Caesar is Lord. And that's precisely why the early Christians were persecuted so harshly. Right? One of the primary statements of early Christian faith is this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. In Romans, Paul writes that the one who declares Jesus is Lord will be saved. In 1 Corinthians, it says it's by the Holy Spirit that we confess 
Jesus as Lord. In Philippians, it says again that every knee will bow and tongue confess Jesus is Lord again and again. This is the resounding refrain of the New Testament and the early church. Jesus is Lord. And this is a direct threat to Caesar. You see, Rome probably wouldn't have cared too much about Jesus or his followers if they were just kind of nice spiritual movement, you know, or if they were saying, Jesus is Lord of our hearts, kumbaya, right? Jesus was preaching about a kingdom. And his followers kept saying, this is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And so Rome was very quick to put Jesus to death and to feed his followers to lions. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus has authority over everything. He has authority over everything. You know, last week we saw how calling God Father limits the authority of earthly fathers. Right? It brings all earthly fathers and mothers under the power of God, who is ultimately the, the Father of all. And in the same way, here, calling Jesus Lord limits the authority of all earthly rulers. Every earthly ruler falls underneath the great authority of Jesus, who is Lord of all. Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. Jesus alone is the one to whom we are committed. No country, no politician, no celebrity or hobby, no workplace, no employer, not even friend and family. Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. And it's out of our allegiance to Jesus that we live as citizens, as parents, as children, siblings, and, and friends, and workers. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one to whom we live all of our lives. And this is what the, the passage in Hebrews here ultimately says. Verse 3 goes on, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Jesus sits on the throne and he rules over all things in earth and in heaven. Everything falls under Jesus. Everything falls at his feet. Theologian Abraham Kuyper once described Jesus' lordship this way. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus can look at anything and rightly proclaim, that belongs to me. That's mine. Every square inch of existence belongs to Jesus because he is Lord. The government, that belongs to Jesus. 
Art? That belongs to Jesus. Nature? That belongs to Jesus. Your bank account? That belongs to Jesus. Your calendar? That belongs to Jesus. Your Facebook posts? Those belong to Jesus too. You see, the creed does not only confess Jesus as Lord, but Jesus is our Lord. Which means as we live, we acknowledge this reality that everything we have belongs to Jesus. I mean, how would living that way transform our lives? To live in the acknowledgement that every word we speak, every action we take, every dollar that we make and spend is from and for Jesus. To transform everything. And this is the truth. This is what it is to be a Christian. Jesus is Lord over all. And so as, as we close up this time, uh, just a charge, a challenge. Uh, Jesus is Christ, right? He is the one that the whole storyline has been leading up to. Uh, he is the one that makes sense of, of the whole story of Scripture. But not just that. Jesus is the one that makes sense of all of life. He is the one that makes everything make sense. Because Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus is also God's only Son. Right? Jesus is God. He's worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of, of every affection from, from waking to sleeping. In living and in dying, Jesus is God, worthy of all of our worship. And finally, Jesus is Lord. Everything belongs to him. That cup of coffee you make in the morning belongs to him. He's with you in that moment, right? When you're driving to work or to the store, Jesus is Lord in that moment. Everything, every square inch belongs to him. And so may we live in this reality in every moment of our lives. Again, from waking to sleeping and living and even dying, Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord. Amen.